Thank you for joining us on Zoom and by telephone today. The show will begin in a few moments. Hi and welcome. I'm Amy Sands-Brodoff, a novelist, short story writer, mentor, and teacher, originally from New York and now based here in Montreal with my husband, children, and high-energy Brittany Spaniel Zeno. I'm the award-winning author of three novels and two volumes of stories. The Sleep of Apples is my newly published novel and stories, which I'm going to chat about today. To tell you a bit about my prior work, my last novel, In Many Waters, focuses on three orphans whose lives intersect on the island of Malta and grapples with our current refugee crisis. The White Space Between won the Canadian Jewish Book Award for Fiction, the Vine Award, and is the story of a mother and daughter struggling with the impact of the Holocaust. Blood Knots, a volume of thematically linked stories about marginalized families on the edge, dramatizes the threads that bind people together and the ones that unravel without warning. Blood Knots was a finalist for the Relit Award. My debut novel, Can You See Me?, penetrates into both the point of view of a young man with schizophrenia and a sister who struggles to help him. The novel was nominated for the Pushcart Prize and is a recommended book of NAMI, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. My reviews, essays, and articles have appeared in Quill Inquire, The Globe and Mail, Tablet, Vogue, Self, and L. I'm a frequent speaker at Montreal's Jewish Public Library, and my afternoon book reviews have been a popular, widely attended event. In addition, I've taught creative writing to special groups. Fountain House in New York City, a haven for people grappling with schizophrenia, as well as Bates House in New Brunswick, New Jersey, a halfway house for formerly incarcerated women. I'm a workshop leader in the newly launched Storyscaping program, teaching creative writing to teens and seniors in underserved areas of Quebec. You can follow me at my website, amysandsbrodoff.com. So what's The Sleep of Apples about? Apples is a novel in stories about nine closely linked characters confronting crises related to mental illness, mortality, sooner rather than later, and gender identity. They're from a variety of backgrounds, but come together in the Montreal neighborhood of Saint-Henri. I don't live in Saint-Henri, but I love to walk along the Lachine Canal in all seasons and to bike ride in summer, spring, and fall. You'll find abandoned train cars and containers 
alongside exquisite sculpture gardens, shiny new condos, bistros, and boutiques crowding out old tenement and factory buildings. A clash between old and new, struggling and affluent. It seemed the perfect place to bring together my diverse group of characters. Before the pandemic hit, I lost my mother, my father, and my beloved other mother, I don't like the term stepmother, in fairly rapid succession. Then COVID-19 brought the world to its knees. Impermanence, mortality, was on all of our minds. When I found out my mom had lung cancer, I resolved to spend as much time with her as possible. We'd had a fraught relationship during most of my life. Death is long, so I wanted to see if I could make peace, heal our bond. I made the trip often from my home in Montreal to her apartment in New York. We talked, took a walk if she could manage it. One winter afternoon over a cup of tea, she told me that she'd formed a bond with the grocery delivery man. He'd stay, they'd talk for hours. He'd been a pilot. He was handsome, smart, witty, 25 years her junior. This story really got my fiction antenna buzzing. It's the seed for the sleep of apples. I'll now share with you an excerpt from the title novella, which comes last in the book. The poets may recognize that the title of the book comes from a beautiful poem by Federico Garcia Lorca. I'll start with part of that poem, which is the epigraph of my book, and segue into the novella. The Sleep of Apples. I want to sleep the sleep of apples. I want to sleep the sleep of that child who longed to cut his heart open far out at sea. I want to sleep for half a second, a second, a minute, a century. But I want everyone to know that I am still alive. One. Just eight months ago, cold, hard white crunched under my feet as I entered Cornucopia. I cruised down the brightly lit aisles, leaning on my cart, my satchel mashed into the front compartment, wanting to taste and touch everything, not to think. Now that I had no one to feed but myself, I enjoyed shopping. I had a long day with patients and their voices reverberated in my ears. I dug the loose shovel into the nut bin, filling one small bag, then another. I craved a cigarette, a scotch. We'd share both and more in the months to come. The butcher handed me a neat packet of sirloin wrapped in wax paper, my usual. You see, I was such a creature of habit until you shook me up. How's it going, Dr. Gildener? Medium. I cleared my throat once, twice, a tick that unnerved me as I could not will it to stop and never knew when it would come. One of my most challenging patients had made a remark about it, diverting attention from the hard work ahead to analyze her analyst. You were kind or polite enough never to comment. 
As I reached for a can of tomato soup, I dislodged a towering stack. I was surprised to find your arm about my waist, whisking me out of the way, and I slid, smooth and swift as a chess piece, while an avalanche of canned soups tumbled down, rolling onto the floor. You okay? You stood beside me in a green apron. I'm dying. You looked at me with clear gray eyes. Been there. I felt a leap in my belly, a knot pulled tight. Novel to look into the eyes of another grown-up without distraction, embarrassment, or reserve. Intimate as touch. But you did. That's what I noticed first. You stooped to gather cans of vegetable soups, your hand grazing the inside of my wrist as I bent to help. You glanced into my cart. Nothing green. A bit cheeky. I like that. Steak and chocolate, perfect. You turned and made your way down the aisle without glancing back. I watched and noticed your strong build and athletic shoulders, your left leg dragging behind the right, the left foot turned outward. Two. It was exactly one week after we met. I lay shivering under a sheet awaiting surgery. My nurse, young, male, and smiling, had eyes cold as crystal. I wished you were the one I was going to wake up to, but I hardly knew you then. You later told me that you wanted to know about everything I'd been through. After your accident, you were so broken you had to start again from the beginning if you wanted to live, as if you'd experienced a painful metamorphosis. New bones, new blood, new skin. I was hoping for such a rebirth. I'd had some suspicious test results, a positive CA-125, which was not always accurate. There were false positives. My OBGYN found swelling in my white ovary, and I'd had bloating, heartburn, back pain. No news there. Dr. Silver came in and patted my shoulder as the anesthesiologist dosed me up and my mind wandered from the frigid white room. I drifted off. I rose up from the bottom of the sea, a lovely dream world. Heat spread through my abdomen, a beat like a pulse, distant, muffled in cotton. Dr. Silver's voice was calm and kind as he told me I had advanced ovarian cancer. He'd removed both ovaries, my fallopian tubes, and uterus. Then he laid out the treatment plan which he hoped would make me, quote, more comfortable, unquote. Should I be making funeral arrangements? Dr. Silver sat with me saying little. It had all happened so fast. How long do I have? He bowed his head as if in prayer, then put a large warm hand on my shoulder. Mary, now is the time to figure out what matters to you most. I felt myself burst into bloom. 
So hopefully you listeners will want to find out what happens to Miri and Guy, and you can do so by reading The Sleep of Apples. As part of getting the word out on my new book, I've recorded a couple of podcasts. Richard King from the CBC asked me if I steal. Now, he wasn't talking about robbing a bank or breaking into a jewelry store. He was talking about stealing stories. You've heard how the title novella was inspired in part by a story my late mom told me before her death. Well, the first story in my book was inspired by a family secret I discovered about my beloved father. He didn't tell me. My other mother did. I'd always wondered why there was an 11-year gap between my dad and my Aunt Bobby. Apparently, when my dad was five years old, he contracted measles. His baby sister caught it. She died. He lived. His mother, my grandma, had trouble forgiving him, and this terrible trauma had a huge impact on my father's life. He became a doctor, a healer, a savior. I'll now share an excerpt of the story which kicks off my new book, The Sleep of Apples. It's inspired by my dad's secret and is uncannily relevant to our current COVID-19 pandemic. What's mine is yours. When my fever hit 105 degrees, my father put me in the hospital. I remember coming home from my Bubby Zelda's 70th birthday party, shivering and sweating and aching all over. Apparently later that night, I was raving mad and did not know my own name. I was eight years old in grade three. I'd never seen my father, a calm and collected doctor, so anxious. Dad hovered over me at Mount Sinai and even stayed overnight by my bedside. There was very little that could make my father miss work as he was devoted to his patients. Once my fever broke and I knew who and where I was, I liked being in the hospital despite my miserable flu symptoms complicated by a strep throat and that bone-deep ache. No school, for one thing, not to mention all of the attention I craved. The nurses catered to me, and the doctors, who all knew my father, gave me vigilant care, telling their lame jokes and remarking how much I resembled my dad, especially around the eyes. This compliment pleased me no end. My dad had magic eyes, hazel, changing color depending on what he wore, a starburst of gold at their center. Early in my stay, Bubby Zelda sent over a pint of maple ice cream, which I had for dinner. Best of all was having my father all to myself, not another patient of his in sight. I was in the hospital for 10 days, the longest in my life, except for my recent stay, which is what got me thinking about this first time. As soon as I got home, I wanted to see Bubby. I was on my way out the front door when my parents called me into the kitchen and sat me down. 
They almost never did this unless something terrible had happened. Bubby Zelda's gone, Dad said. Gone where? My dad pulled me into his lap. Bubby came down with the flu. It progressed to pneumonia and a secondary infection we couldn't treat. The antibiotics didn't do much. The bug was resistant. I was too stunned to think. A bunch of questions flooded my mind. When did she get sick? Why didn't anyone tell me? Did she catch it from me? Was she in the same hospital at the same time? As for Jewish, everything then happened very fast. After the funeral, we drove to the gravesite at Mount Hebron Cemetery in Queens, a sweeping burial ground spread out as far as the eye could see. The day was very cold, but with a crisp shining sun that made everything shimmer and looked like it had been outlined in black ink. The cruel brightness made my head and heart ache. I'd never been to a cemetery before, and the expanse of graves that went on and on, the outcropping of headstones, reminded me of unending fields like the ones I'd seen on a cross-country trip through Iowa. But these were fields of dead people, thousands of them, each with loved ones left behind. We drove to the area where Bubby was to be buried and there was a huge open hole. The closed casket already lowered before our family arrived and some burly men who were not part of the family standing around with shovels. I stared down into the hole Bubby's white pine casket pale against the dark wound of earth. We stood in a semicircle as Rabbi Stein distributed black ribbons to our family. Dad helped me pin mine to my winter coat, which was bright red, my favorite color at the time, and I watched as Rabbi Stein nicked the gross grain with a small knife to make a tear, a symbol of the tear in our hearts. Rabbi Stein began a prayer. Baruch atah Anoi Elchenu Melchalam. He talked on, but looking down at the casket, I didn't believe Bubby Zelda was inside, or she was trapped, alive and still breathing. I had to know for sure. Panicked, I ran to the hole, sat down on my bottom, and slid fast down into the ditch. The smell was musty, rich, and inside of the earth smell, and inside of the body smell, and I was within all of it now. I heard the group of mourners gasp, my mother cry out, and then my dad was talking softly to me, stooping low and reaching for me, but I was down too far, about six feet under, and I was crying and shaking, still coughing a little. We need to open the box! I was standing on Bubby's white pine casket. There was no other place for my feet. I drifted outside of my body and was split in two, spectral, a stranger to myself, floating free. But lowered into the earth, I would reach her, my Bubby, my Bubby Zelda.
My father shucked off his winter coat, murmuring reassurances to me as he lay on his stomach, arms extending down into the pit. I raised mine, and he managed to grasp me under my arms. Dad got into a crouch, and with help from the other men, he lifted me out as if I was just being delivered, born out of the very earth. Rabbi Stein led us through more of the prayers and then asked each of us to share a thought, a wish, a memory, or a feeling about Bubby. My father spoke last with trembling voice and hands, and he addressed Bubby directly as if she were still alive and he was talking to her. I believe that he was. He said, Ema, forgive me. His words puzzled me. I didn't know why he asked Bubby to forgive him. Miri monks, find a stone, find a beautiful stone for Bubby's grave. We put a stone. I didn't want to let him go, but I set about looking for a beautiful rock, sifting through the dirt. It was hard to find a stone, a good one. There were lots of pebbles and gravel and sand, but finding a pretty stone was hard and gave me momentary respite from my confused and painful thoughts. At one point, my mother tried to pull me up from under my arms, but I made myself limp and went right back to my foraging. Frustrated, I stood up to find my father, but saw that he was not among the knot of mourners at Bubby's grave. Everyone was talking and sharing memories, so I slipped away and wandered among the gravestones, looking for my dad. It took me a while to find him. At last, I spotted him sitting on the cold, damp ground in front of a small gravestone of pink granite. I looked at the engraving on the stone, Miriam Gildener, and felt my bones lurch. No one ever called me Miriam, and yet the name was on all of my official forms for school, emblazoned on my birth certificate. She only liked to be called Miriam, three years old, going on 16. Dad said softly. We did everything together. I looked at the tiny, perfect pink, black, and quartz marbled stone. There was my name, and then the dates, 1938 to 1941. When I was five, Dad said, I came down with measles. Miriam caught it from me. She died. I lived. Thank you so very much for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed getting a taste of my new book, The Sleep of Apples, and learning a bit about the story behind these stories. Keep well. Yashirkoa. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. 
As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.